You're listening to the Irish Times Worldview Podcast. Welcome to Worldview from the Irish Times. I'm Dennis Staunton. Later, as Saudi Arabia's King Salman reshuffles the royal pack after just three months on the throne, we ask what the changes at the top will mean for the oil-rich kingdom and for the region. But we begin in Britain, where the election is still two days away, but much of the commentary is already focused on what will happen if, as the polls predict, no party wins an overall majority. British politics may be entering unexplored terrain, not just because the two big parties are shrinking, but because of the impact of the Fixed-Term Parliament Act, which changes the way governments can be formed and changed. To discuss this election, I'm joined from Glasgow by our London editor, Mark Hennessy, from Manchester by Professor Colin Talbot, Professor of Government at the University of Manchester, and here in Dublin by the Irish Times foreign policy editor, Patrick Smith. Mark Hennessy, if we look at the polls, what are they telling us? What's changed since the beginning of the campaign? Well, the most striking thing about the campaign is that it has appeared to have changed very little in terms of what the polls are reporting. They both put Labour and the Conservatives in and around 33%. It varies up and down a point or two, but it hasn't done much more than that. And there has been no uh, key issue during the course of the campaign that has fundamentally altered uh, the dynamic of what has happened. Partly that is because the main parties, particularly in England, are leading such cloistered lives. There have never been campaigns like this that have been so divorced from the public at large. They've done everything possible to try and avoid the Gillian Duffy moment that plagued Gordon Brown in 2010. And as a result of doing all of that, they have, to a very large degree, created a very antiseptic campaign that hasn't really been bought into by many of the British public. Now, the exception to that, obviously, is what is happening in Scotland, where the SNP are rampant, the Scottish Labour are in very deep trouble. Uh, Polls now suggest that the Scottish Labour could lose all or nearly all of their seats. Uh, There is evidence of tactical voting in some constituencies. It wouldn't certainly protect them very much in places like Glasgow, but there are constituencies where there is a sufficiently large rump of ex uh, or former Liberal Democrat or former Conservative or one-time Conservative voters who may be persuaded on this particular occasion to vote uh, for Labour candidates to save them. However, that narrative has become quite dominant uh, in Scotland over the last couple of days and it is provoking its own reaction. So there are people who would have been in the middle of the ground who are actually being turned towards the SNP because they're so furious at the idea that uh, a Tory would support somebody from Labour. So there there are all sorts of currents and mini-currents going on uh, within the battle at large. But what is profoundly uh, obvious after a very long campaign and a very arduous one is how weary people are and they've yet to encounter, to actually even begin the coalition negotiations. Uh, Professor Colin Talbot, you've been writing about what happens after the election if, as we expect, no party is going to be able to form a government on its own. Now, uh, until uh, a few years ago, there were various constitutional conventions that tended to govern this, but now you have uh, a piece of legislation called the Fixed-Term Parliament Act. How does that change the way governments are formed in Britain? Uh, well, in terms of how they're formed, it doesn't change. The, the Fixed-Term Parliament Act doesn't change very much. Um, and But I think the formation of this government is going to be much more difficult than last time. Uh, last time in 2010, 
the Conservatives and the Liberal Democrats before them clearly had a parliamentary uh, majority if they could manage to form a coalition. And crucially, the civil service in the shape of Sir Gus O'Donnell, as he was then the Cabinet Secretary, were very keen for them to form a coalition and orchestrated the negotiations. This time round, it looks like no two parties between them will be able to form a coalition which will have a majority in Parliament. Uh, and then we get into very, very grey and murky areas about exactly how the government is formed. Well, can we go through a couple of those possible permutations? Let's imagine that, uh, as many polls are predicting, and certainly the bookies are predicting, uh, David Cameron's Conservative Party wins the largest number of seats, but not enough to form a majority to form a government, and indeed not enough to form a coalition majority coalition government with the Liberal Democrats. David Cameron on May the eighth is still Prime Minister. What does he do then? Um, well, he's perfectly entitled to, uh, as the sitting Prime Minister and as the leader of the party with the largest number of seats, to attempt to form a government that can get a majority in the House of Commons. Um, the, the way he would probably do that is by uh, trying to get together a coalition or some sort of arrangement to back a Queen's speech, which they would present on the 27th of May, which is very late, by the way, norm by, by our normal standards. Uh, and see whether or not they could get that passed by the House of Commons. That's when we then start to get into very uh, grey areas about the effects of the Fixed-Term Parliament Act. My view is that the Fixed-Term Parliament Act has now defined what a vote of no confidence in the government is, which means the government has to fall. If any other sort of vote of no confidence is passed in the government, so, for example, an amendment to the Queen's speech... Um, I'm not at all sure, and certainly the parliamentary people I've talked to are not sure, that the government would have to take any notice of that. So, in other words, even if his Queen's speech is defeated, he can just uh, say, I'm still Prime Minister and my government continues? He could, yeah. I mean, logically, what would happen next is that the, uh, the Labour Party, presumably, would then put down a motion of no confidence in the terms of the Fixed-Term Parliament Act, uh, assuming that Cameron didn't actually have, have a majority, that would then be passed. Uh, at that point, then, uh, there's 14 days between the passing of that motion uh, and the deadline for calling another election in which a new government can be formed. And that would be the window in which Ed Miliband could try to put together some sort of arrangement, whether it's a minority government or a liberal Labour minority coalition, uh, or whatever, uh, to try and get through a motion of confidence. And at the end of, by the end of the 14 days, they have to pass, the Commons has to pass an, an actual affirmatory motion of confidence in the government that's proposed. And, uh, and during this 14 days, and while all of this is going on, who's actually controlling the process? Uh, well, nobody, really. Uh, we're into completely unknown territory. The Fixed-Term Parliament Act doesn't lay down any process for it. Uh, technically, uh, David Cameron could stay on as Prime Minister until the end of those 14 days, because there has to be somebody as Prime Minister. Uh, so he would stay on in the same way that Gordon Brown stayed on for five days after being defeated in 2010. Uh, so he could, in theory, uh, stay on as prime minister for six or seven weeks after the election um, before a new minority Labour government was formed. Do you think, uh, Professor Talbot, that uh, the British political system knows what it's facing?
No. <laughs> uh, I think I think a lot of people still think the old rules apply and haven't really come to terms with the effects of the Fixed-Term fixed Parliament Act. And I don't think uh, anybody's really come to terms yet with the fact that we're now in a multi-party democracy rather than a two-party or two-and-a-half-party democracy. And I don't see things going back to the way they were any time soon, if ever. Hattie Smith, how big a change is this in the British political system? I, I mean, I think it's, it, I think it's huge. I, I think uh, Professor Talbot talks there about no longer a two-party system, and that's absolutely correct. But there are other features of the, of the, the voting, for example, which represent profound cultural, political cultural changes in, in, in terms of, of British uh, elections. Uh, particularly, and Mark was talking, referring to tactical voting, I, I think um, tactical voting was certainly not part of the British political tradition until perhaps the last election, and, and, and certainly in this one it seems to be uh, regarded as quite a significant um, uh, force. Um, and tactical voting affects things like legitimacy. I mean, uh, there's a lot of discussion about, about would a, a government be with a, with a plurality of the seats but not a majority? Would it, would it be uh, uh, legitimate in the sense of, of having the right to run the country? But what does that mean if a large number of its, its votes, for example, were uh, were votes that were were tactically uh, uh, given to, to to the parties in in that plurality? Uh, what does it mean if you compare, for example, the votes uh, nationally uh, with the votes uh, in terms of MPs, when there can be quite a considerable di difference? Um, in and and what does that? What effect does that have on the legitimacy? Mark Hennessy, there are signs that this whole issue of legitimacy is already entering into the discourse in the final days of the campaign and that the Conservatives, at least, uh, and their supporters in the media, uh, appear to be getting ready uh, to frame the debate about legitimacy in the hours after the election count. Absolutely. I mean, if you look at the Daily Telegraph's headline today, they talk about Ed Miliband plot to occupy number 10. This is the lead story in a major... Uh, Fleet Street newspaper. I mean, quite extraordinary some of the language that's being used. The, the Tories and Cameron particularly have literally done a scorched earth uh, policy where they have deliberately talked up the prospects of the Scottish National Party in Scotland uh, at the expense of Labour because it suits them to see Labour being uh, reduced to a rump if not completely destroyed north of the border. It's all uh, being done without any care being given to the future of the United Kingdom. It has infuriated uh, Scottish Conservatives who believe that they came out of the referendum campaign last year in quite a decent place and certainly a better one than they've been since the party suffered its wipeout in the 1997 uh, Blair won uh, election. And indeed the DUP have been frustrated by that. Uh, oh, by absolutely, that. Yes, 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 indeed. But you, you then get into a situation whereby the, the key to this election will be the, the Liberal Democrats, not the Scots uh, Nationalists in some ways, because... At the end of the day, Labour and the Scottish Nationals are playing a zero-sum game north of the border. It's, it, the Liberals are the ones who will provide coalition options for the two main parties if the Liberals can make themselves mathematically relevant to the subsequent discussion. If, as some of the worst-case uh, numbers are suggesting this morning, that they disappear down to a rump for like 17 or 20 seats, then they're going to be completely irrelevant because even if they're brought on board, they're not going to be the difference between success and failure. If, on the other hand, they, they do hit the 30-35 number,
numbers that they were talking about before this campaign be- begins or began, then there is a possibility that put together with Labour, they could get to uh, perhaps not a majority coalition, but they could get very, very close to an, an operational one uh, operating as, as a minority government with the protection of the Fixed Term Parliament Act. And again, the point has been made earlier that people here haven't understood it. There's no doubt that somebody like Bertie Ahern in Ireland at his peak or Harold Wilson in the 1970s would never have been out of power if the Fixed-Term Parliament Act uh, operated because a, a government, if it's prepared to be very careful, can limit its uh, exposure to votes. For instance, uh, as the Queen's speech vote is to a very large extent irrelevant in any event because it, the language can be so bland, you can make it very difficult for your opponents to uh, to tie you up. Uh, then you get into uh, other issues where you, you, you go for stuff that you know your main opponent uh, cannot uh, oppose. For instance, they'll bring forward legislation to deal with the bedroom tax. The SNP would have no choice but to to support the abolition of the bedroom tax because it's one of their key policies. And over a period of months, a minority Labour government in such a a situation could actually portray an image to the public at large of a successful functioning government, which would actually start to increase its own reputation with the public and start to give it political capital that would be of use uh, for the future. And that is largely what happened in 2007. Uh, in Scotland where uh, uh, Alex Salmond ran a minority government. Now, there's a key difference, of course, between what happened in Holyrood in 2007 and what might happen now in that Salmond had a greater number of potential partners. He was able to cooperate with the Conservatives, for instance, on, on, on changing business rates in Scotland. He cooperated with the Liberal Democrats on the abolition of tuition fees, and he cooperated with Labour on other uh, on other issues uh, dealing with welfare. So he was able to play one off against the other, and he only needed one of the rumps to come with him to get any particular piece of legislation passed. Labour on this occasion are absolutely insistent that they're not going to do a formal deal with, with the, the, the SNP and they, they equally then unrealistically go on to try and argue that somehow they can do, avoid a vote-by-vote basis. When clearly that would be an inevitability uh, but it doesn't have to be one that necessarily uh, uh, makes it impossible for Labour to rule so, if they're very careful what they do and if they are lucky. Yes, and now Professor Talbot, Sorry. obviously this uh, the, the Fixed-Term Parliaments Act uh, the Liberal Democrats and the Conservatives brought it in to protect their coalition, essentially. Uh, do you think they might regret it now? Because do you think it, is, it looks like it would actually work to protect a minority Labour government? Yes, I think that's absolutely the case. Uh, and I agree with everything that's just been said about that. And, and just to point out the uh, parallels with the minority SNP government in Scotland, Scotland, of course, already this parliament was set up on a fixed-term basis, so they already had that advantage. They didn't have one additional advantage which a British government has, which is uh, the rules governing the way in which budgets are set in uh, the, U- the Westminster Parliament are different to the way in which they're set in Scotland. Uh, in Scotland, uh, anybody can move amendments to increase or decrease taxation or spending. That's not in Westminster Parliament, only the government can put forward uh, motions to increase spending or uh, or to increase taxes. So, for example, when the SNP say they're going to go to London and move motions to end austerity by increasing spending on the NHS, they can't do it technically in the British in the British Parliament. Um, so, actually, the the Westminster government is better protected. 
uh, as a minority government than the SNP government was in the Scottish Parliament. But the other point I wanted to make is about this issue of legitimacy. I think there are there's three issues around legitimacy. One is very simple. Whoever can command votes in Commons is the legitimate government. And as long as they don't get defeated on uh, motions of confidence, they remain the legitimate government, and that's the system for Westminster. Uh, the number of votes cast makes no difference whatsoever. Labour won in terms of popular vote, uh, the 1951 election, but the Conservatives got more seats and formed government. Um, so that, that argument about number of votes is largely irrelevant, except in one respect, and this is, I think, going to be crucial for the future. We're going to have a situation where the national parties, uh, who are standing in the whole of the UK, uh, not just Labour and the Conservatives, but the uh, Liberal Democrats, the Greens and UKIP, in particular, are going to get vastly different numbers of seats compared to the numbers of votes they get. It's particularly true at the lower end, where the Liberal Democrats are likely to get into single figures in terms of percentage of the vote, uh, but end up with maybe 25 or 30 seats or more. Uh, UK is likely to beat them in terms of the popular vote and end up with one, two or three seats at most. And the Greens are likely to be more or less equal to the Liberal Democrats or only slightly behind them and end up with one seat. And I think that's going to raise all sorts of issues of legitimacy uh, about the electoral system, not necessarily about the government. But, the, but those questions about the electoral system have been raised before and uh, not to much effect uh, because the two big parties seem still to be wedded to it. Well, I think that's, that's true, uh, but I think that's beginning to change. I mean, there are strong signs now in the undergrowth in both Conservatives and Labour that they're recognising that actually they could end up uh, on the wrong end of this. And the same sort of thing is going to happen in Scotland. I mean, where Scotland's going to have, having had Labour having a long period of the benefit of being the largest but not necessarily in terms of the popular vote, the majority party in Scotland, but winning the vast majority of the seats it's reached a tipping point where the SNP will probably get somewhere around 45% of the vote in Scotland and have more or less a clean sweep of seats there. Uh, so 55% of the electorate's votes won't count. I think all, all of these questions now, I, I agree with you that you know, we obviously had a referendum three years ago and it failed. I think that's not off the agenda. I think that's going to come back with, with a vengeance and I think both the main parties are going to have to reassess their position on it. And this issue of uh, the idea that somehow the party that gets the largest number of seats, even if they don't get a majority, that that party has won the election, which seems to be the way that many people, including people in the media in Britain, perceive things. Is that something that's going to be difficult to dislodge as a, as a perception? Uh, well, certainly as a perception, perhaps. I mean, and it's partly because of the way in which we tend to report elections, uh, certainly in Britain. I don't know about in the Republic, but in Britain, we, we report things like the Greek elections as Syriza having won the Greek elections. Well, of course, they didn't. They were the largest party. Um, and I think that's, uh, that, you know, that's fairly well embedded in British culture to talk about things in that way. And it is going to be difficult to dislodge. But the legal and constitutional position is quite clear. It's whoever can command a majority in Parliament. And we have had, in 1924, the first Labour government was formed when it was the second largest party in Parliament with the support of the then Liberal Party. Uh, so finally, can I ask all three of you, uh, 
Uh, how do we think uh, this thing is going to, uh, to play out, and when are we going to have uh, a government in the United Kingdom uh, following this election? Paddy. Um, well, I would bow to, to Professor Talbot. Uh, maybe 14 days, if we're lucky, we'll, we'll have a government. Um, my suspicion is still that the uh, that Labour um, min, um, Labour minority government is is uh, likely uh, with with uh, SNP support, uh, but but there's absolutely no telling on the on the polling figures. Mark Hennessy. Well, if, if to judge a man by where he puts his money in a bookmaker shop, uh, then I put money on a Labour and Liberal Democrat minority government. Uh, with them forming a, a formal coalition, because I can't see a situation where uh, he would want, where Miliband would want to leave himself completely exposed to the SNP, and at least this way he could uh, reduce it to a certain degree. But uh, there's one major caveat, and all of the posters are saying this: that there is a much larger group of genuine don't don't knows out there for campaign 15 than there has been in any previous election. There are people who have not yet made up their mind and they are capable of going all over the landscape between now and polling. Uh, Professor Talbot, how do you see this playing out? Uh, obviously, it depends on uh, actually a few tens of thousands of votes, exactly what the lineup in the parliament is. If the Conservatives are the largest party with perhaps 10 or 15 seats more than Labour, um, then I would expect them to probably try and form a government. They don't have to deliver the Queen's speech until the 27th of May for the state opening of Parliament. Uh, if they got defeated on that, which I would expect they would be uh, by a combination of, of anti-Tory votes, then we trigger the 14-day period uh, for the Fixed-Term Parliament Act. Uh, the... Uh, the alternative, I suppose, is that it's much closer than that and David Cameron recognises that he can't form a government and goes to the Queen and recommends that Ed Miliband is asked to try and form a government. Uh, that could happen in a couple of days. So we could have anything from uh, a government being formed within days to anything up to six weeks, possibly. Professor Colin Talbot, uh, Mark Hennessy and Patrick Smith, thank you. You're listening to Worldview from the Irish Times with me, Dennis Staunton. Saudi Arabia's King Salman, aged 79 but just three months on the throne, has reordered the succession, appointing his nephew as crown prince in place of a half-brother and elevating a younger son as deputy crown prince. The new crown prince is Interior Minister Mohammed bin Nayef, who's 55 years old, and his deputy is the Defence Minister Mohammed bin Salman, who's only 26 and a favourite younger son of the king. So what is going on? To find out, I'm joined now from Nicosia by our Middle East analyst, Michael Jansen. Michael, what is the king up to? Well, the king is setting the succession in his own branch of the royal family, is what he's doing, which is... Uh, there were seven brothers who uh, were born of a lady called Hassa el Suderi. Um, and Salman is the last of the brothers to survive. And so he has passed on to the next generation, uh, to, to uh, Prince Naif, who was another Suderi um, child. Um, to be the crown prince. And then he, he has also appointed, King Salman has also appointed his own son, another Sudairi, to be the deputy crown prince. 
Um, and this uh, seems to indicate that if the succession goes as he plans, which is not always necessarily true, um, the Sudaris would be on the throne for another 50 years. Uh, previously, the Sudaris used to alternate with non-Sudaris on the throne, which kept other members of the royal family quiet because they had a chance at the kingship, but this has uh, now been wiped out. Is there a danger from the point of view of the Sudaris that the, uh, the non-Sudari members of the royal family will get a bit restive now? Well, I think they might uh, get a bit restive. It depends also on whether the Sudaris policies are successful. And at the moment, the war in Yemen doesn't look very successful, and some of the other policies the Saudi government has been following have not also been very successful. So um, I think a great deal depends on whether or not the war in Yemen is wound down with the Saudis being able to claim victory. And, and by, by that you mean essentially that, they, that the Saudis will extricate themselves from this intervention. They went in to, uh, to fight these uh, Shia Houthi rebels, and, uh, and the war doesn't seem to have gone all that well for them. No, it hasn't gone all that well for them. Uh, they have learned that they can't just bomb and expect to win, uh, which is what the other coalition run by the Americans, has discovered when dealing with the Islamic State in Syria and Iraq. Uh, the Islamic State has, although it has retreated in some areas, it has also expanded its uh, control in others. Um, uh, the, Gu the Gulf Cooperation Council, uh, Michael, this regional grouping, is meeting in the Saudi capital, Riyadh, uh, this week. What's the, what are the main items on their agenda? Well, the main items, of course, are the war in Yemen and the uh, potential uh, U.S.-European-Russian-Chinese uh, deal with the Iranians over its nuclear program. And so the, the Saudis are very worried, and also some of the Gulf states, over this uh, potential deal because they don't want Iran to come out from under sanctions and to be able to... Uh, extend its influence in the region. But if this deal actually does go ahead between the Iranians and the world powers, what, if anything, can the uh, Saudis and their allies in the Gulf do about it? They can't do very much about it. Uh, I think what will happen is that they will uh, quickly uh, assert their own interests, for instance, to buy has great um, interest in trading with Iran and act, acting as a mediator, mediator power between Iran and um, other world uh, commercial interests, because uh, Dubai is in a very strong geographic position to do this. And it actually did precisely this during the eight-year Iran-Iraq war from 1980 till 1988. So Dubai is likely to split off. Abu Dhabi will probably keep quiet about it. Oman also will not go along with any kind of efforts to exclude Iran because Oman has got good relations with Iran as well as the rest of the GCC members. And, and Michael, if we cast our minds back to before the Iranian Revolution, uh, Iran and, uh, and, and Saudi Arabia were 
sort of rival uh, allies for the Americans, but they uh, but the, but they they succeed, they manage to uh, conduct their rivalry uh, without causing each other too much damage. Is that a fair assessment? Yes, that's true. Uh, they were rivals. And, uh, of course, now the Saudis and the Iranians are rivals on two levels, on the political level and on the religious level, because the Iranian revolution has tried to expand its influence across the Middle East. Uh, and, but the Iranians don't seem to have realized that 85% uh, of the people in the Middle East are Sunnis rather than Shias, which, are, uh, which is the the sect of the Iranians. Uh, the Iranians have been successful in, in, in Iraq, but they haven't been successful anywhere else in, in spreading their revolutionary ideas among Shias. Uh, finally, Michael, you were mentioning that, uh, uh, that if uh, all goes according to King Salman's plan, his branch of the family will be on the throne for another 50 years or so. Is the um, Saudi royal family and is the, the, the regime there uh, secure enough uh, to feel confident that they will indeed be in place in 50 years' time? Well, um, the sons and, uh, of the ruler, of uh, King Abdulaziz, were quite firm in the seat of power. Uh, the grandsons, I think, are less firm, and they also have their own ideas. And some of them are more reformist, and some of them are deeply conservative. So there could be a split in the royal family along those lines, as well as along the lines of uh, branches of the family from different sons and different mothers. As I said before, it, it used to, the, the, the throne used to alternate between Sudaris and non-Sudaris, and the non-Sudaris were generally from completely different um, parentage, I mean, different mothers, so that uh, each branch of the family could expect to hold the kingship uh, from time to time, and now this has completely been wiped out. Michael Jansen, thank you. And that's all from this edition of Worldview. You can find more on all our stories at irishtimes.com and you can contact us at worldview at irishtimes.com. But from producer Sinead O'Shea, sound engineer Rob O'Sullivan and from me, Dennis Staunton, goodbye. Mm -hmm.